Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Hello and welcome to Future Proof, the podcast. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McRae. Coming up on this week's programme, we're going to be looking at what happens once we've already figured out food and shelter in space. There are many societal issues that we have here on Earth and uh, there are some researchers trying to figure out how we do not replicate them uh, in space, such as what do we do about crime? Do we build space prisons? What about labour laws? And how do we ensure that the rich don't just get richer on Mars or Zeton 1 or whatever future planets we aim to colonise in the future? We'll be talking about that uh, on this week's podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can email us science at newstalk.com or you can find us on Twitter. We're at Newstalk Science. Before we go into that, though, it's time to look back at the week's science news. And joining me in studio is Dr. Fergus McAuliffe from ICRAG and Dr. Shane Bergen from UCD. Uh, last week, we talked quite a lot about ChatGPT3. And this week, saw ChatGPT4 hit the shelves, so to speak, Shane. I, I know it seems like a really it's a silly thing to be kind of like talking about incremental changes in AI, but this is pretty significant. It is. So if ChatGPT is the car, then... GPT-4, they really need better names, is the engine, right? So it can be shaped to do lots of different things. What I find amazing about all of this is how quickly this technology is changing. It doesn't seem that long ago that I didn't know what AI was and that I heard about it. And I really had to sit down one day and kind of try and read online what this thing is. It's remarkable and it will be the next big thing in terms of tech, right? It's potentially bigger than what Google was. You're a convert. I remember maybe six months ago, you were like, don't believe the hype, this AI thing, this isn't like... I didn't say it was a good thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm not saying it's a good thing either. Uh, but but, but, but you, you, having seen what, what, what this yeah, new, new absolutely. tech can do... Yeah, absolutely. I think it's incredible what it can do. And I think the, like, the ethical considerations and the philosophical stuff is really interesting as well as to like what are its limits. I also think the term intelligence is quite interesting. What makes it intelligent, right? It's that some tech person years ago decided to put that in the phrase so they could make money out of it. I would still question as to how intelligent it truly is. It can do a lot of stuff, though. Is Google intelligent? What do you think? Yes. Yes, I do. I, I mean, like, like I do think um, if you are looking for information, it can answer um, the, the, an, the answer the questions you are looking for. So it's it an encyclopedia intelligence. It is. Uh, it is intelligent. I mean, like, look. Um, yeah. What does ChatGPT four do now? Because it actually is entering a, a phase where it really can do mix a lot of skills together. Yeah, and it's learning at an incredible pace, right? So what, like, on, at simple level, it can do. Um, it, it's much, much more than just a, a smart chatbot, right? Uh, so where you're typing online with something and it's interacting with you and you think it's a person at the other end, it can do more. So Duolingo are using it, right? So, for example, so if you're learning Italian and you get something wrong, it, it, it knows what you said, it knows what was wrong and it can correct you. Or you can take a picture of the stuff that's in your fridge and it can suggest what you could make for dinner. Um, or this is a good one. Be My Eyes is a product that's associated with it, which uh, image can be input. So it, like a camera can look at what's in front of you and then it can describe in words what it sees, which could be helpful if, if you're blind uh, to see the world around you. It's also better at maths than the the regular um, GPT. So it's doing the honours maths for the leaving, uh, this one here. And it seemingly is more ethical, right? So uh, what they've said is that they have taught it how to be more ethical than the old GPT. So they learned from the mistakes and they have um, now said that it won't do sexist jokes. 
It won't rank attractiveness, nor will it guide you on how to make harmful chemicals. And it mentioned sarin in the uh, press release that I read, which I thought was very interesting. But there is something called the Waluigi effect. Have you heard about that? No. No. So it says the better you teach an AI the rules, the better you teach it how to break the rules. So the smarter it gets and the more you tell it about the rule breaking, the more likely it is to be able to do it. I guess it's like if you went and did a law degree for bad as opposed to for good. You know, you'd be really good at breaking the law because you'd know where the edge is. Well, well, talking about law degrees, I mean, the, the law seems to me to be an, an a sector that is under grave threat because what is our common law system but a series of rules and case studies of precedent? And if you train this AI on Irish case law, in a very, very short amount of time, it will give you precedent and now the arguments you need to present to a judge yeah. for a particular case. And there's no question it will be able to do that within seconds more accurately than any lawyer alive. And it will do it for free. Yes, but there is there's something about the importance ethically of a human being involved in decisions when you're making a decision about another human. So you could make the same argument like this would be a much better way to diagnose disease than a doctor because it has access to every known all right, thing. I'll give you one lawyer, one lawyer and this AI. That's all you need for any any law firm <laughs> in the future. And that sounds like a joke, but um, obviously they'll need to, to, to prove things. But like we are... We're, we're, we're entering an era like this particular um, version of chat GPT passed the, uh, passed the bar exam very well. It can it do passed, science. It yeah. can do science. It yeah. can suggest different molecules. It can also... It can come up with jokes. It can be a comedian. But what I think it lacks is the collective capacity that humans have to learn, right? So it's not individual learning. It's our collective sense of learning. So the law, for example, isn't static. The law changes because the world changes. How would an AI uh, recognise what's going on around it and be compassionate? uh, Just just add add plus (laughs) compassionate into your query. Um, Our second uh, story has to do with Mount Everest, Fergus, and the, the, the things that we leave there. Yeah, so this is a really nice story. It's all about extremophiles on Mount Everest. So these are microbes that can survive in really harsh environments. So we found extremophiles in Antarctica, in the lakes that are under the ice. We find them in geothermal springs, so where it's really hot. We find them in deserts. We find them um, at the bottom of the ocean under high pressure. And we've also found them um, almost at the summit of Mount Everest. So... This is a study whereby there was a group of scientists um, and they were, going, they were going up the south column of Mount Everest to put in a weather station. And they were asked by a group of microbiologists to Who were too scared to go up the face of Everest. <laughs> Who were too scared <laughs> and, and they couldn't send chat GPT-4 up there to get the soil for them. So, the, so, so those scientists brought back down the soil and what the microbiologists did is that they did some DNA analysis of the soil um, from right at the top of Mount Everest and they found the extremophiles that they expected, so microbes that were able to live at temperatures all the way all the way down to minus ten degrees C. But they also found um, microbes that are human associated. Right. So essentially, when people are climbing up Mount Everest, they are breathing, they are sneezing, they are coughing, and Gross. those those microbes are able to to be found all the way up at the top of Mount Everest. And the really surprising thing was when they took the soil back and they brought into the lab those human-associated microbes that in, in um, that ordinarily would be growing in your throat or in your nose, 
they were still viable. So they were they were able to survive at the top of the mountain, almost effectively enter dormancy, yet under the right conditions, they were able to come back to life. And this is what the scientists are calling... Are, are you talking about viruses and bacteria or something bigger? So it's bacteria. Okay. Essentially bacteria. So... What they've described it as is it's a frozen signature by humans that's left on the side of the mountain. So as climate changes, things will get warmer, things might get wetter. And essentially these human associated bacteria that are all the way up at the top of the mountain, they, they're currently dormant. But if the climate were to change, then they can effectively come back to life, essentially. Wow. And it's 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 really interesting because it means that, you know, we value like when we're hiking, we're always saying leave no trace. But even if you're not leaving rubbish, you are still leaving part of you up there and bacteria up there. Um, and so we're leaving a mark. And I think, you know, like uh, things survive and things adapt and, and, and things evolve. And f- like for me, really, this particular story, I think it's it's summed up by the world famous scientist, Dr. Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, who says that no matter what, life finds a way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, our third story has to do with data centres, Shane. Yes, the little data centre that could. So data centres get very warm and that's a big problem. So a lot of the cost of running a data centre is actually keeping it cool. And that's why we have them in places like Ireland, because it's it's cold here relative to, to other places. So what this story is, is a small startup in England called Deep Green. And they have built a tiny washing machine sized um, data centre. It's available for hire to do things like AI, right? And they are able to connect it into a local swimming pool and heat it up so that people can go in and swim in the pool and it's somewhere in Devon and they're saving the pool £100,000 a year. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Now, this is, it's incredible. Inside this box, right, which is washing machine sized, they have their computers in there and they do get really hot and it's surrounded by oil. So the oil heats up and then much like a heating system at home, it heats then the hot water, like the immersion for the, for the swimming pool. And, and that's all it takes and it's running all the time so it keeps that pool hot and they're saying this is a proof of concept. We could, in theory, have a more dispersed form of data center that will be used to heat things that otherwise will cost money to heat. So, um, like, because when you think about it, we're spending so much money to cool these things down. And then a couple of miles down the road, we're spending so much money to heat up our houses. Yeah. So why can't these things kind of interact with each other? And that's what these guys are trying to get off the ground. I think that is a really clever idea. But what's shocking is the amount of money that you're saying they would have otherwise spent heating this pool. Yeah. £100,000 is an enormous heating bill. Well, think about like how much it costs just to put an immersion heater on for like an hour and that's heating it up to 60 degrees. But you're trying to heat a swimming pool to 30 degrees. It's like how many immersion uh, tanks are in a, in a swimming pool, Johnny? Can you work that out really quick? No. Uh, and, and, and I'm not... I'm not doing that today, Shane. <laughs> what, what, I, what, I, what the other side of that is, though, that we have many of these data centres that are creating so much heat that yes. they uh, are that we need to cool down that are equivalent, presumably, to that amount of yeah. cooling. Like, that is terrifying. There's a technology out there called district heating, right, which basically means you can plumb in heating. It, it tends to only work in places where there's high population density. But just say there's data centres out near Tala. Why can't they be used to heat Tala and give everyone in Tala free heat or cheaper heat? You know, wouldn't it be sensible? Why not? Yeah. Um, All right. Our final story has to do with avoiding conflict, Fergus, which would be useful in this studio every once in a while. (laughs) (laughs) It absolutely would. But who doesn't love a good debate? So 
as we all know, when debate starts, people can get entrenched in their positions. They can be 100% sure of their convictions and it can lead to argument and conflict. Um, so what if there was a solution there to calm everybody down? So this is a study that was done out of Ball State University in the US and they looked at the concept of intellectual humility. And what intellectual humility is, it's, it's, a, it's a sense of being open to other people's views. It's a willingness to listen, to facilitate dialogue and to engage in civil debate. Now, that sounds great, but how do we get it? So what they did in this study is they took 300 students and they split them into small groups to debate the very tricky issue of student tuition fees. On top of that, they put moles or actors into the groups to agitate and stir up the debate and they looked for cues in the conversation that essentially showed aggro happening in the conversation. So, so were people interrupting each other? Were they getting loud? Were they using black and white wording, like absolutely 100% no way, etc. And that Sounds gave like them... Jonathan. Yeah, I'm just yeah. going to say, <laughs> you've described me. <laughs> but there, there, is, there is hope for us all because that gave them a baseline of intellectual humility. Then in the second step, they split the group in two and they asked the first half of, of the students to, to reflect on values that were important to them. So things like, is the freedom to determine one's own actions, is that important to you? Or acceptance of another people's views. And they asked them to write about those values for like two minutes. The other half of people, they asked them to write about if they liked milk or tea or water. They then brought them back into the debate and they found that 60% of the people who did this values exercise, they were much more intellectually humble and they also reported feeling much more empathy and much more sympathy for the people that they were that they were debating against. And for me, anyway, this, I think, answers the question that was posed in 2003 by the Black Eyed Peas of where is the love? It appears to be it's in the pen and paper. It is reflecting on what you value. And the next time you're getting enraged on Twitter, rather than starting World War Three, you open up the notes app on your phone. You make a few notes about what, what you value. And that, Fergie, is how you spread the love. Fergus McAuliffe and Shane Bergen, thanks very much. Shane, before we let you go, you have a podcast I called The Trust Race. What's it about? It's about how scandals and controversies have affected our trust in science. It's a six-parter and the first episode is out now. Fantastic. Um, you'll find a link on our Twitter page. We're at News Talk Science. Now, settling in space might seem like a fun, otherworldly concept, but it could also bring a number of practical realities to consider. What would space prisons be like? How would we monitor labour laws? And how do we control population growth? All of these themes and considerations are in a book by Dr. Erica Nesvoled. Uh, it's called Off Earth, Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space. She joins me now. Erica, uh, my first question before we get into this, because I find it really fascinating, but why, why do we need to think about this stuff now? I mean, we haven't even figured out how to live on another planet. Why do we need to think about space prisons? Yeah, that's a great question and something I asked myself often while I was working hard on this book is why am I worried about, about these topics that might not even come up within my lifetime. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that these questions will affect our descendants who figure out how to live in space someday. And this is a great time to start thinking about how to put protections in place to make their lives better. But the other really interesting answer is that thinking about living in space and how to build communities from scratch what kind of problems you might run into and what kind of solutions you could develop. All of these things can help us figure out how to address the really big problems we face on Earth today. 
Right. So it's kind of like the Apollo missions idea that by just trying to go to the moon, we'll figure out a whole bunch of answers to to other problems that we have here on Earth. Exactly. Space has given us a lot of really great spin-off technologies and thinking about the social implications of living in space could potentially do the same in terms of solutions to social problems. Uh, so, so one of the um, one of the issues that you cover in the book is is the fact that the people who get to go to space are of a particular type. It seems to me mostly either completely non-emotional, um, and I've interviewed, I'd say, over a dozen um, astronauts in my time, very level-headed people who aren't easily shook, um, but also keep their cars close to their chests, um, and obviously for for uh, for you know reasons that you you uh, can imagine. You need sort of need that personality in space, and the other is, uh, I suppose, the eccentric billionaire and uh, and and the other rich people who are almost the opposite of that. And and I'm wondering when we start to colonize space, um, will we start to, to really need to think about who gets to go? Because if it's just those two sort of personalities, life is going to be very very chaotic up there. <laughs> That's an excellent point. Um, I can't speak really to the uh, personality selection that, that NASA and other space agencies does when they select astronauts, but they certainly have extremely rigorous selection methods in terms of who they hire and send us into space as astronauts. And that includes things like uh, their, their skills, their background, certainly some psychological profiling and some very rigorous medical testing um, for a number of reasons. And now that we have private spaceflight uh, getting started, you're seeing a, a growth in the diversity of, of the types of people that get to go, you're correct. Now, it's not extremely diverse. It's still mostly people who can afford to go to space, which is its own uh, uh, narrow range. And uh, and so it does lead the question of, well, what if, uh, what if you or I, for example, were in charge of picking who is going to go live on Mars permanently, of all the people in the world who wanted to? Uh, and that's a big question. We would have to think about things like personality, but also background. We want to include scientists, engineers, pilots, but maybe we better include a dentist or two in there as well. Um, and also um, physical ability and, and health. We're, we're so restrictive on, on medical screening right now, but there's there's no reason we need to keep being so restrictive in the future, especially since there's always the chance of accidents happening in space or the second generation being born with disabilities. It's more important to figure out how to help those people live in space than to try to exclude them from the long-term project. Uh, a lot of those problems have been sort of sorted by post-apocalyptic movie um, narratives in the 1970s till now, I would imagine. I think of Omega Man and um, all of the various, um, the world needs to start again with a new society. A lot of those problems have been sort of tackled, haven't they, in terms of uh, the sort of people you need to survive and the sort of people you really don't want in your in your group uh, often male gung-ho military types, it seems. <laughs> um, but but uh, joking aside, like literature uh, and and uh, and movies, they do they do kind of touch on some of these ideas, don't they? Oh, certainly. And I would say that science fiction authors were some of the first um, futurists and writers who were thinking about these issues of, of how to build societies in space. And, and they continue to do, do so today in a very entertaining way, but but also a really provocative way. Um, and, and yes, that includes non-space science fiction, like, like post-apocalyptic fiction. We're all fascinated by the story of what if we did have to start from scratch mm. um, and, and put a new society together based on what we know about human history so far. Um, so this is... This I think is, uh, about that a lot. <laughs> as, as do Too I. Too much, I um, think. 
<laughs> well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, I, I got a book out of thinking about it. So uh, I think it's a productive topic, <laughs> and it's by no means solved either by science fiction writers or by actual experts like like sociologists and such who, who study these topics. Um, but we've learned so much over the, the past decades, the past you know centuries of human society, um, spaces where we're actually going to test all of these theories and find out how right we were. Um, what about crime in space because when Russia invaded the Ukraine I was very conscious that at that time there were Russian scientists who were uh, uh, working and and cosmonauts who were working on the International Space Station uh, under the authority of Putin living in a in a in a, a spinning sort of uh, office that's cohabited with uh, with Americans and and other NATO members so to speak and I was wondering what would happen if there was a crime or some sort of um, so, some sort of fight broke out? Uh, and I, I was reading about your your um, book and and how you were trying to imagine what we would need to do for a space prison. Why do you think a space prison would need to be any different from a, a planet Earth prison? Um, what, you've got two really fascinating questions in there. So so in terms of prisons, um, when I started thinking about the problem of criminal justice in space, I started realizing how extremely impractical it would be to build a prison in space. I mean, even just on the space station, the example you give, where would they even put it? Um, Space is going to be really limited, whether you're in a space station or a habitat on Mars. So you'd have to spend all of the effort to build a prison. You'd have to keep it pressurized and have air and water and food for the, the people that you've decided to imprison. And then those people won't be productively laboring for the settlement anymore unless you force them to, which is its own ethical problem. And so it just leads to a lot of practical questions as well as ethical ones, which makes you realize that uh, prisons here on Earth have have their own problems as well. There's been a lot of discussion in the U.S. in particular in recent years about the problems of, of the prison system and how it, they're not actually good for society, which um, leads to some interesting questions about, okay, well, what if there is crime, interpersonal violence in space? What should we do about it? What are some alternatives that cultures on Earth have used that don't involve police systems or prison systems? And can we learn from those examples and apply them in space and just skip over repeating this problem of prisons in space? Such as? um, So so aside from the impracticality, um, it's not clear that imprisoning people or putting them in the prison system actually um, prevents them from, reduces the chance of them causing harm in the future, Um, which is the study of recidivism. In fact, prisons, uh, I'll speak for the U.S. in particular, um, prisons are inherently very violent places and they can lead to an increase in criminal behavior because when you're in prison, you are forced to defend yourself. You perhaps end up with a drug addiction. uh, You learn criminal techniques from other people uh, that you're in prison with. It's just, it's not it's not uh, a healthy place, and so it, it can <laughs> lead not. to a, a lot of recidivism, which which defeats the whole purpose. And so other alternatives, uh, something that's being explored a lot in the States right now is something called restorative justice, which is about working with the victims of crime and of harm to figure out what kind of closure and healing they need from the process, whether that's guided communication with the perpetrators or something else, and, and how can we reach uh, actual justice and closure for the victims instead of just focusing on punishing people on behalf of society. What about laws, though? Because do do we have any laws in space right now? I mean, we, we obviously this is um, this sea law, right? This international waters law that's slightly different to um, to to law on land. But then every other country has lots of different rules uh, pertaining to uh, men, women, what's allowed in public, what's not. Um, the the extent of a particular punishment for a, cer- a certain crime can 
vary wildly depending on the on the country. Like if if, if I'm on the spa- international space station and I steal someone's helmet, like what is the crime? What is the what is the what is the law um, that that needs to be applied there? Yeah, that's a great question. So we do have something called the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, um, wow. which was was signed all the way back in the 60s, and uh, it's the big governing treaty um, that handles uh, a lot of of uh, human activity in space. But it's um it's very general and and vague in spots. And in particular, it says things like uh, you can't have weapons of mass destruction in space, which made sense at the time. This was something that the USSR and the US were trying to uh, to work out between themselves. Uh, and I'm thankful for that part of the treaty. And it, it says things like uh, a nation can't go into space and claim territory, things like that. But it doesn't cover individuals or private companies very explicitly beyond saying that anyone going into space is uh, subject to ongoing supervision and regulation by their launching state. So if I launch from Florida in the U.S., then I have to follow U.S. laws. But as you point out, uh, different national laws can can very much differ from each other. And once people from different countries start to interact in space, as they do on the ISS right now, um, that could easily uh, lead to a lot of questions about how these laws get applied. And and I don't have a lot of answers about how that's going to turn out because uh, it hasn't really been tested in court yet. Nobody's had their helmet stolen on the space station. <laughs> but but um, more realistically, like, you know, there are private companies looking at um, space mining as a theoretical. There are obviously um, asteroids um, that uh, could be extremely mineral rich. Uh, but even the moon, we you know, there could be something worth mining on the moon. Is there anything stopping a company from doing that? Is there like some sort of corporate law or some sort of... Um, national law that prevents a company from doing that sort of thing? Indeed, this is the big question in space law right now. It's not about uh, interpersonal uh, theft or violence, but about how to regulate these these large companies. Um, and, and who gets to regulate them, right? And who gets to regulate them, precisely. So there's discussion happening on the international stage, but also um, large space-faring countries who are trying to incentivize their own nation's private space industries are trying to figure out how to do that through, through national law. And the U.S. in particular has been working very hard to talk about this exact issue of how do we handle resource extraction in space. If we want to encourage an industry that can make money off of these resources, we need to make sure that they can make money off of these resources. And so the U.S. has been shopping around the Artemis Accords, um, which is an agreement that was drawn up just by the states, um, and that they have been forming bilateral agreements with different signatories on that will say things like, okay, if you're a um, lunar mining company and you go to the moon and mine water ice out of the moon, um, you can't claim to own that part of the moon because the Outer Space Treaty says you can't appropriate territory. But if you extract resources, you can own them and sell them, which is very similar to how it works on Earth in terms of international waters, which you brought up before. No one owns those oceans, but you can pull fish out of them and, and you own the fish and can sell them. And so that's the approach that the U.S. is trying to take right now. And we'll see how that plays out. Um, thinking about early colonizers and settlers, um, you know, they're often depicted in um, in film as very similar to the those who traveled out west in America in the 19th century um, looking for a gold uh, or uh, or a new beginning and i'm wondering is that is that how we imagine civilization developing as we go uh, you know whether it's mars or uh, or the moon or or another planet um it, will it just be random adventurers who go out and try and make a, a living out there scratching the the, the <laughs> earth for 
Mars Rock or whatever it is. They like. Do we do we have an idea of how those settlements might begin? This is certainly the narrative that a lot of people who are advocating for space colonization like to use. They they use the word colonization. They talk about the wild, wild west. They love to talk about the gold rush because that puts uh, dollar signs in everybody's eyes. Um, but there are a lot of reasons to question that narrative. One is that um, the uh, European colonization of North America was very bad for a lot of people uh, and for the environment itself. So maybe we'll, we want to question how much of that we want to re- repeat in space. And the other is that this idea of, uh, of yeah, a gold miner going out with his pickaxe into the wilds of California and, and becoming a millionaire is not a feasible model for space because individuals can't get themselves to space and make a, a living off of space. Space is very much a team sport. Um, and even in terms of just living in space, um, we'll have to depend on each other and the community a lot more than we ever have on Earth because we'll be sharing the same air, the same pressurized habitat. We'll be trying to grow crops together. No one's going to be able to just get upset with the rest of the community, strike out on their own and, and make a living off the land because you, you can't even breathe on the land, let alone make a living off of it. When you were doing research for the book, was there someone who stood out as as an expert who who thought that this is something that we need to think about right now, as opposed to you know a conversation on a radio program where we talk about imaginary um, colonization of, of Mars, which is obviously possibly a hundred years away? Yeah. So so one of the most urgent issues that I discuss in the book um, is the problems we're having in low Earth orbit. So this is where all of our satellites live in space. And this is what lets you and I talk over over uh, a long distance right now. And uh, it operates our, our GPS um, and all of our military surveillance, all of our scientific satellites that study climate change. This is all happening in low Earth orbit. But the problem is all of that technology in the same place um, it produces a lot of orbital debris, which is just little bits of fragments of, of telescopes and old telescopes that don't work anymore, just flying around in space. And this has been uh, known to be a potential problem that's going to get worse over the years as we get more debris up there. Eventually, it could pose a risk to satellites, which in the long, the, the near term could very well lead to a situation where we can't even operate satellites in low Earth orbit, um, which could seriously affect all of us here on Earth and all of the technologies that we depend on. And so there are people working on this problem. Marie Bajaw is one that I interviewed in the book, but there's a lot of people working on it. Um, from the perspective of policy, technology, is there a way we can clean up this debris? But also, what can we learn from uh, environmental movements on Earth and, and, and prevention of pollution and climate change on Earth? Because it's a very similar sort of problem. Hmm. It's just more damage to an environment. The environment's empty space, uh, but it's still an environment that we're managing to damage through trying to make a lot of money off of it. Yeah, so a kind of environmentalist um, sort of remit goes beyond Earth. It goes uh, into our atmosphere and beyond possibly new planets as well. And God forbid if we ever colonize another planet that we ever treated the way we treated this one. Really interesting uh, questions being asked and lots of interesting stories along the way in the book. It's called Off Earth Ethical Questions and Quandaries for Living in Outer Space. The author is Dr. Erica Nesvalid. Erica, thanks for your time. Thank you. I hadn't really ever considered the idea of space prisons, um, but they've been they they feature a lot in in uh, in science fiction, don't they? They look exactly like Earth prisons, except they make shh noises with the with the door, don't they? Uh, right, it's time to go back uh, over some of your comments from last week. You know, we were talking 
quite a bit about AI. And I was talking about, as you heard there, chatting with um, Fergus, I was talking about the fact that um, ChatGPT4 is coming along and that the world sort of needs to really shake itself and, and realize what is in front of them because it's going to hit us like a freight train. The, the development of AI now has just hit uh, a curve and I, I really do think there's going to be a huge shakeup of, 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 of jobs and industry but also a, a reckoning of what, what it means to be human and that's what we were talking about last week we had Naomi Hart and Ben Cowan uh, from Adapt and we also had our own AI voiced by our producer Marais. Uh, Mary says a few months ago I'd been speaking to my friend online about 10 minutes later my Google said to me I can't feel romantic love but I think you're wonderful I was shocked well, Mary, that's not AI. That's just um, the voice probably picking up something um, by mistake. So don't worry about that, Mary. You you needn't worry. Google is not um, falling in love with you. Um, another person says, can AI pay my mortgage? No, uh, but it could probably analyze your bills fairly easily and identify ways that you might um, uh, reduce your shopping. I think uh, it wouldn't be crazy to think that you would be able to feed in your bills into uh, an AI engine and it be able to recommend a number of suppliers that could provide the same product for less. That's, I would imagine, very doable. In fact, one of the um, one of the applications, as we heard, is you know being able to take a photograph of ing- ingredients in your fridge or ingredients in your um, in your larder, and and for AI to be able to put those things together to to tell you what sort of meals you can make with them. Um, Ashingen County Mayo says, I've used ChatGPT for product descriptions for our online food shop, but I also lecture in marketing and during in-class exercises. The students admitted they were using it to help them answer challenges and questions that I set them in class. So see, we already have third-level students using this technology. I understand why people see this as a threat to education in a way that kids won't learn um, and people won't learn, they'll just ask the machine. But there, there is a separate skill set that we also probably will need to, to hone, and that is how to talk to the technology and how to get the most out of it. And my son's doing his a class project, as I said last week. Um, it's probably a small part of um, the work that needs to be done both in schools and, and businesses to try and say, okay, this is a job that someone else can do. Well, let, let, let us do this bit and let the AI do that bit. Um, Another says, can this technology recreate a live improv piece like Cream in 1967 and do it again for the same piece but makes the drummer annoyed with the bassist which informs his drumming or write a blur song like Modern Life is Rubbish? When that can be done, maybe I'll get worried. Uh, I think we're not that far off. I mean, I really don't think we're that far off. Look at um, how music is uh, is being um, used in AI there was a it was a challenge recently where they got four composers and they got um, an AI and they got the composers to compose a piece in the style of a particular composer and then the AI did it as well. And the AI was consistently picked by expert composers as being more like the chosen composer. In other words, the AI was able to beat living composers who had spent their life studying and creating music in the style of another composer. The AI was able to do better. Um, so I... I mean, I think it can. I really do think we are we are there to a certain extent. The, the problem, of course, is how people interpret art. And some things that happen in art are profound and, and to some people and some are completely ridiculous to others. So it depends on what you mean by art and that'll, always, that, that'll be a question that'll hang with us, I'd say, for the next 100 years. Andy on Twitter says, if the economy can adjust well, AI replacing um, people in jobs could lead to product services uh, provided by those jobs being cheaper or free and still generate profits and tax. People can still give government help 
receive government help and afford cheap or free products, services, education, leading to increasing quality of life. That, Andy, is the most optimistic um, view on AI adoption I have ever heard because the promise of technology, the lie really of technology for the last 30 years that I've been interacting with it and, and studying it is that it will make our lives easier. What has actually happened is it has made us more prolific in our work for sure, but we do not work less hours than our parents. In fact, our parents have no idea how we manage to achieve so much with our lives, but we're still working a lot harder. The quality of life undoubtedly for people um, has gone down by a number of metrics, certainly work-life balance for those who work and, and have kids and so on. So I, I don't I don't know. I think the idea that we have AI, it'll do all the work for us and we can sit around um, eating uh, Cheetos and watching uh, reruns of our favourite TV shows like in uh, WALL-E, I just don't see that future happening for us, nor do I think I'd want it. Jill says, what a terrific show. Great panel of experts teasing out the implications of artificial intelligence. Well, thanks, Jill. Uh, Barry says, will we be able to teach the AI to speak an Irish version of English so that we can understand its speech? For example, can AI be taught to start every sentence with I think, or in a lot of cases, I think, and each sentence with I know, and then add on as well to every statement and lots of M's and AMs? Um, yeah, it will. It can. Absolutely it will. That's not a problem. Um, that is, that is you know, the, the smallest of problems. But I know what you're saying. Will it have colloquialisms and built-in errors in speech and I think that was one of the things that Naomi said is like that can be done slight different changes and um, and ups and downs of our voices the body language all that stuff is tricky but it is it is doable um, we asked the AI uh, is it true that humans are uh, no longer the only creative species on the planet with the new birth of AI and Neve, who's a biodiversity educator emailed in saying Akara I may have heard your misheard your statement but did you say that humans are the only creative species have you ever seen a wasp's nest a beehive a primrose in flower a tree growing and a river flowing nature is the most creative dynamic and beautiful form of life and is the life system that keeps us alive I will take nature any day over AI can we please have a deeper and broader conversation about what we give priority to can we get out into the real natural world and start valuing all of the things that keep us alive and surround us with beauty, not a virtual pretend world that does not feed our bodies or souls? Well, I think you've misinterpreted what I said there. I don't think that there are two choices for us. And one is a, a sort of natural Eden and the other is, uh, you know, life on the Death Star. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't count wasps' nests beehives, uh, flowers, as creativity. I'm sorry, I, I don't. I don't think there is an interpretation of the world happening within the mind of those um, things. And I think that's what we would say of people that art or creativity, that is a, a reinterpretation of what they're seeing with a non-utilitarian end. In other words, they look at what they're looking at and they say, um, this is what I need to do and that's why I do it. That's what nature does. But actually, uh, humans look at the things around them and for their own pleasure or entertainment or um, whatever social ne psychological needs they have, they interpret the world through art and creativity. And that's what I'm talking about. And I think AI, when prompted, can do that, not consciously, but it can create the outputs of that in a way that I don't think animals or plants can doesn't mean I would not much prefer to be hiking in the woods than talking to an AI. Don't get me wrong. I'm totally with you on that, but I don't think it's an either-or situation. 
And Catherine uh, via email says, AI is not intelligence. Always remember, AI is based on a binary system that cannot accurately calculate the following, pi, a third, a sixth, or anything related to these fractions. We will always need our mathematicians and physicists who can calculate curves in three dimensions, etc. Accuracy, when we want to explore the macrocosm or the microcosm, we will need human brains who can use fractions and complex equations. Do not agree with that. Uh, the translations are created by AI are inaccurate and often demeaning to the original text. I read many publications about ancient art and ancient culture, which are written by Italian experts. When I look at the English versions produced by AI, I'm often totally confused as the translation is misleading and meaningless. I'm a linguist and I do understand the original versions. If the whole system were to be changed using a base three code in the place of a binary code, then we might be able to trust the mathematics, whereas the ability to translate is another issue, which is far more complex just to know, listening to your broadcast, finding it very interesting. Wish it was still on at noon. <laughs> well, sorry about the timings. We can't really do much about that. The, the powers that be um, move the pieces on the chessboard for that one, Catherine. Um, but I, I don't agree with that. We will um, we will need humans for mathematics. Um, I do believe that we're very close to computers far outpacing uh, humans when it comes to, to mathematics. Um, and uh, and translations, I also believe, is a nut that will get cracked. Uh, that is a that is a it is a problem. It's a tricky problem, but it's not impossible or unsolvable. Whether or not this is a good thing, by the way, Catherine, I, I haven't made a decision on yet myself personally. I'm not advocating for this. What I'm saying is, it's coming. Like the dawn is coming tomorrow morning. There is very little we can do about it. The question is, what do we want to prioritize, and how will we feel about ourselves and our place in the world? once AI can do all of the things that we thought were uniquely human. And that's a question that I think we will wrestle with for for some time. It's a question we do need to answer too. That's it from us on this week's Future Proof. Thank you for all of your comments and thanks to Marisa Sullivan, Steve Daunt, Simon Keane and Hugo De Silva on sound. We'll be back with more Future Proof in your podcast feed on Tuesday. In the meantime, stay curious. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.